Our second scripture lesson today comes from a very familiar part of the Bible, from Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. However, to make things a little interesting, a little more interesting, I have uh, used a translation that we don't often use in worship. The translation today is from The Voice. This is a version of the Bible, un unaffiliated with a television show by the same name. <laughs> this is a version of the Bible that is presented in a script format. So as we read through, you'll see characters that are listed and then what they say. So you could read the entire Bible as a play with a narrator kind of giving the in-between portions. It takes a little bit of working around, but I think it's really nice um, to hear in the kind of a different way to bring an old familiar story to new light. Listen now for the spirit is speaking to the church. The eternal God placed the newly made man in the garden of Eden in order to work the ground and care for it. He made certain demands of the man regarding life in the garden. God said, eat freely from any and all of the trees in the garden. I only require that you abstain from eating the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Beware, the day you eat the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Of all the wild creatures the eternal God had created, the serpent was the craftiest. The serpent said to the woman, is it true that God has forbidden you to eat fruits from the trees of the garden? Eve replied, no servant, serpent. God said we are free to eat of the fruit from the trees of the garden. We are granted access to any variety and all amounts of fruit with one exception, the fruit from the tree found in the center of the garden. God instructed us not to eat or touch the fruit of that tree, or we would die. Die? No, you'll not die. God is playing games with you. The truth is that God knows the day you eat the fruit from that tree, you will awaken something powerful in you and become like him, possessing knowledge of both good and evil. The woman approached the tree, eyed its fruit, coveted its mouth-watering, wisdom-granting beauty. She plucked a fruit from the tree and ate. She then offered the fruit to her husband, who was close by, and he ate as well. Suddenly their eyes were opened to a reality previously unknown. For the first time, they sensed their vulnerability and rushed to hide their naked bodies, stitching fig leaves into crude loincloths. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. I'd like to start our message time this morning with a question for you all, so feel free to, to answer back to me. Uh, when does bread taste best? Fresh out of the oven, I'm hearing. What else? When else does bread taste best? Butter on it? Toast? Yeah, okay. I thought some of the options might be when you sneak pieces of dough even before it's baked. <laughs> Fresh out of the oven, still piping hot and smelling of freshness. Maybe, maybe it's best when it's sliced up and served with toppings of butter and jam or cream cheese. What about after toasting or dipping in eggs and cinnamon and sugar? Some of you might even think bread is best when you cut it into strips and form a little log cabin out of it. Others might think the whole bread thing is overrated and prefer a nice rice cake. 
or a gluten-free tortilla. Bread is a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people. And in the West, it has made up most of the diet of our population since its first creation at the beginning of the Bronze Age. Indeed, in Hebrew, the word for food is still today their word for bread. It's the same word. You can't have food without saying the word bread. It's the same. You can't eat without having bread is the implication. That word, by the way, is lechem, as in Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, where Jesus, the bread of the world, was born. It means the house of bread, so aptly named Beit Lechem. So is anyone hungry after all this talk of bread? Okay. <laughs> now imagine how hungry you'll be after 40 minutes of this sermon. <laughs> no? Okay. What about four hours of driving with nowhere to eat along the way? Or 40 hours after a disaster trying to survive on what you can find until assistance can reach you? We talk about the 40 days in the wilderness in the gospel story today, like uh, it's no big deal. Like 40 days. Jesus went out into the wilderness 40 days, got tempted, and then he was served by angels. Great. But if we know anything about Jesus' testing there, it's that he was hungry. At the very end of this trying time, Jesus faces the great adversary who tries to get him to turn stones into bread. Jesus hears a voice in the wilderness, but it is not the still small voice he probably expected nor the voice that cried out at his baptism just 40 days earlier. Instead, it is a voice that Matthew renders this way in Greek. I pay hina hoi lithoi hutoi artoi genontai. Speak that the stones, these ones, bread might become, as wooden and literal a translation. The temptation here is that Jesus would take matters into his own hands, that he is so hungry that he will fulfill his own needs without following God's plan for him. Jesus' reply, taken from Deuteronomy, is that one does not simply live by eating bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So hunger, even extreme hunger, 40 days worth of hunger, doesn't work. Next up, the temptation of glory and uncertainty. The tempter quotes scripture right back at Jesus. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written, first of all, if, if you are the son of God, not 40 days ago, God's voice came directly from heaven. Heavens opened, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I find joy. If, I think that's been pretty well stated. Next, apparently Satan is trying to get Jesus to make scripture be fulfilled instead of trusting in its truth already. Whenever I hear of false prophets uh, trying to manufacture miracles, I always come back to this passage and Jesus' response, do not test God. Instead, we should trust that God is there and will uphold us in God's own Lastly, evil McEvil face tries to get Jesus to skip the hard part, the hard path in front of him. He tries to get Jesus to jump right to the ending. Things turn out all right at the end. All you have to do is worship me and you skip ahead to page 216, the end of the story. <clears throat> Jesus again responds with the equivalent of, nope, not today, Satan, not any day. 
I know my times tables. We must worship and serve only God. Cool. Jesus knows his scripture, knows the heart of the matter, rejects the temptation in the wilderness. But are the things that Satan asks Jesus to do terrible in themselves? Well, not too long after this, Jesus creates tasty, delicious bread in the feeding of the 5,000. Admittedly, not necessarily from stone, but in that story, it's not to feed him, it's to feed 5,000 people that are gathered there. He's feeding others. It's not a self-serving miracle. Next, immediately following this temptation story, we are told that angels of God appear to Jesus and serve him, diakonos, the root of our word deacon. But they appear in God's own time, not because Jesus forces his circumstances to match a scriptural mold. And lastly, of course, after the crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection places him in heaven, given all authority in heaven and on earth. The temptation lay not in claiming the power, but trying to claim it before its time, trying to take a shortcut to skip ahead. I wonder, when have you found your connection with God to be a strength in the midst of difficulty? When have you found your connection with God to be a strength in the midst of difficulty? I'm reminded of a story from one of my favorite authors in childhood, Beverly Cleary. In the book, Beezus and Ramona, a very curious and forthright girl named Ramona decides that the best bite of an apple is always the first one. So she sneaks into the cellar one day where all the apples are kept and takes a bite of each apple stored there, one bite from dozens of apples. She wanted only the sweetest bite of each apple. Why wait and delay the joy? And her older sister and parents know that if they make a big deal out of this, they'll have to deal with this behavior again and again. Instead of remarking on all of these apples that mysteriously have a Ramona-sized bite out of them, they simply change their plans and make applesauce. They're still feeding the family and doing so in a way that removed the temptation to bite all of the apples. And they get to have a great conversation about the importance of sharing and taking joy in others' joy. I wonder, when have your plans had to change because of unexpected missteps? When have your plans had to change because of unexpected missteps? Of course, Stories of eating apples, that brings us naturally to the story of Genesis, the uh, story of, create, uh, of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man, that is such a long phrase. Traditionally, this story is interpreted to tell us that Adam and Eve disobeyed God out of pride, a desire to be self-sufficient, uninhibited, and have the power of control over their own life at the price of disobeying God. You know, the exact opposite of what Jesus demonstrates in his temptation story. In taking on the knowledge of good and evil, the first humans disobey God and cast doubts on God's sovereignty. When we judge each other's good or evil nature, 
we cause pain and suffering. Instead of acting in the way that God has told us with mercy and kindness to everyone, we seek to bite the fruit again and list requirements to be met before we'll offer help. By the same token, when we judge ourselves good or evil, we cut ourselves off from a community of people who would care for us and love us in the same way that God does. No wonder John Calvin said we must act as though everyone else was chosen for heaven, but to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Even if Eve and Adam leaving the garden wasn't a part of the original plan, God still loves them and offers them ways to clothe and shelter themselves. God has made applesauce from, well, a twice-bitten fruit. We can be comforted that when we fall, when we fail, God loves us still. When we're as hungry as we've ever been, God will provide. When we put ourselves in God's care, when we act like Jesus does and recognize our dependence on God, we can be secure in who we are and whose we are. David Lose, uh, the former president of Luther Seminary, put it this way. Jesus will be content to be hungry as others are hungry, dependent on God's word and grace for all good things. He will be at risk and vulnerable as are all others, finding safety in the promises of God. And he will refuse to define himself or seek power apart from his relationship with God, giving his worship and allegiance only to the Lord God who created and sustains him. I wonder, how can you follow Jesus in defining yourself in relationship with God? How can you follow Jesus in defining yourself in relationship with God? My friends, May you find yourself not through isolation, but through relationships with God, your family, and your friends, and even those God is calling you to love more dearly. May Jesus guide you in finding the bread of life that you can share with everyone you meet. And may the Holy Spirit help you make applesauce of whatever mistakes you've made along the way. Amen.